Today is February 28th, 2021, and this is episode number 42. After a two-week absence, episode number 42, and a one-year anniversary of the beginning of Blurred Laws in Life, with me, your host, Richard Bush. First, I must apologize for being out two weeks, but I have been very busy in my real life with my day and night job as a lawyer and in charge of a law firm with real cases and real work. And I just did not have the the time to put in to do an episode of Blurred Laws in Life as much as I wanted to. I love doing this podcast. I love coming to you each week. I love sharing current developments in the law, in politics, in the intersection of law and politics, in the entertainment field with all of you. So I've missed being part of your lives the last um, two weeks, but I've made a decision in light of all that is going on, which is instead of recording during the week and dropping blurred laws in life on Thursdays, We are now going to record on the weekends and release Blurred Laws in Life each week on Monday. I think that'll make it much easier on me to do a good show with new information and have the time to put into it that I need to. And um, doing it on the weekend, I think, will help a lot in that regard. So no longer can you expect Thursday releases of Blurred Laws in Life. We will start releasing with this episode number 42 on Mondays of each week. One thing that was interesting was that in the interim, the last two weeks, while Blurred Laws and Life was absent from all of your lives, and I know that there were calls to depression hotlines because of the absence of Blurred Laws and Life, we went from 212 followers to 225 followers on the Blurred Laws and Life Instagram page. Yes, 225 followers we now have. From zero to 225 in just under one year. That's truly amazing. Now, the last episode of Blurred Laws and Life that we did was the Sunday morning edition right before the Super Bowl with our guest, the great Michael Rappaport. And he and I discussed many topics on that show. We tried to keep it light. We did keep it light. We talked about our Super Bowl predictions. We talked about a lot of different things. And on that show, as everyone knows, we talked, as I said, about our Super Bowl prediction and our bets. And You all know from episode number 41 that I took the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the under. And you all know that I won that bet. Just saying. Just so you all know, for the record, I picked Tom Brady. Don't bet against Tom Brady is what I always say. And the Tampa Bay Bucs and Tom Brady did not let me down. And the defense played great, so the under... Uh, won as well. I did a parlay and I won that bet. Now on that show, the last episode of Blurred Laws and Life that we did, I asked Michael Rappaport to pick his five favorite movies and 
five favorite songs of all time. And to my surprise, I should say to my delight, he picked as one of his top five songs, Rapper's Delight from 1982. Many of you are probably too young to remember Rapper's Delight, but it was basically the first rap song of all time. Many people would say it started the rap genre in full force. You know it, hotel, motel, holiday in. So after that episode, people have been asking me, since I didn't mention them on the show, for my favorite, five favorite movies and five favorite songs of all time. And it's very difficult. I have more than five in each category. And I've put some thought into it. If I said I put a lot of thought into this, I would be lying, but I did put some thought into this. So for the record, since I have been asked repeatedly since episode number 41 of Blurred Laws in Life for my top five songs and movies of all time, here they go. First songs, Eminem, Lose Yourself, Marvin Gaye, Sexual Healing, Kansas, Carry On, My Wayward Son, Elton John, Your Song, and I think this might come as a surprise to many, but Rupert Jones's Escape, the Pina Colada song. If you like Pina Coladas. And the reason why I mentioned the Rupert Jones Escape song is because, as you all know, we've had a debate on Blurred Laws in Life with our songwriter clients and friends about whether lyrics or melody is the most important part of a song. And I think Rupert Jones's escape is a serious argument for lyrics because that song is all about the lyrics. And um, I do enjoy that song. Now, some honorable mentions, and this isn't fair, but some honorable mentions in the top five of all time would be James Taylor's How Sweet It Is, Foreigner Urgent, Freebird, and anything from Michael Jackson's Thriller album. Now, on to my top five movies of all time. They would be, and again, I have put some thought into this. I'm sure if I thought put more thought, I would come up with some other movies as well, but um, off the top of my head, top five or six. I actually have six movies on this list. The Big Short, Working Girl with Melanie Griffith and Harrison Ford. The first Star Trek movie with Christopher Pine as the new Captain Kirk. Creed, Rocky, and a recent movie, Jojo Rabbit, which if you've never seen Jojo Rabbit, I highly recommend it. So those are my top five movies, six movies actually, uh, top songs, and I hope that satisfies those who have been asking me about it since my last podcast. Recently, um, I did a guest spot. I think I did this, in fact, I'm pretty sure I did this after the Super Bowl edition of Blurred Laws in Life with Michael Rappaport. I did a guest spot on Maverick's podcast, Best of the Best. Um, he talked with me about all kinds of topics, not just my career and the cases that we've litigated and won, but so much more. And if you have not listened to Maverick's podcast, I think you do yourself a favor to do so. And I think you might enjoy 
um, listening to uh, his interview of me. Now, since my last podcast, several things have happened in the intersection of law and politics. Uh, Donald Trump fired Rudy Giuliani. Dominion, the voting machine company, continued its barrage of lawsuits by suing the MyPillow guy for defamation for $1.3 billion after, of course, suing Rudy Giuliani for $1.3 billion. Ted Cruz went to Cancun while the people in Texas literally froze to death. Donald Trump got off in a Senate impeachment vote, uh, voting for conviction with seven or eight Republicans voting to impeach, but the rest voting to acquit. Um, And since two thirds are required, even though all the Democrats voted to convict and seven or eight Republicans did as well, Donald Trump uh, got off. Um, The New York prosecutors have Donald Trump's tax returns, which is going to be interesting. And Robinhood, the stock market website um, that boasts free trading, and Reddit took control of the stock market and led to numerous lawsuits. And so all of those topics, I think, deserve mention, discussion, and analysis. So... Without further ado, let's now get on with the more legal aspect of this episode number 42 of Blurred Laws and Life. So first, in my order of issues to discuss in this legal part of episode number 42 of Blur Laws in Life, is the fact that it was reported that Donald Trump has fired Rudy Giuliani, that Rudy Giuliani no longer is Donald Trump's attorney. And of course, that comes on the heels of Dominion suing Rudy Giuliani and many others, including the My Pillow guy, each for $1.3 billion for the accusations that they changed people's votes, Dominion did, and that Dominion's machines were rigged to ensure that Donald Trump lost the presidency of the United States. Um, they are not letting up. They are going for it. And it is quite ironic that at the same time that Rudy Giuliani is fighting for his legal life, as I mentioned on an earlier episode of Blurred Laws in Life. People have asked for him to be disbarred. People have asked for him to be censored in the state of New York. He's 77 years old, and, you know, the question has to be asked whether all this publicity, all this recognition for being Donald Trump's lawyer has been worth it for Rudy Giuliani. I've made my view of it clear. I have never seen a scenario where someone has gone from such a respected figure to what he now is thought of in most legal and other circles. It will be really interesting to see how these lawsuits turn out. And as we know, and I'll be talking about in a moment, the fallout, the aftermath from the Capitol Hill attacks um, have far from subsided. 
there'll be much more to come still on that. Relatedly, I guess I should talk about that now, that the defense that many of those now being charged, those who were so quick to brag about their behavior, post on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, what they were doing, now are pleading two things, that one, Donald Trump is responsible, and we'll talk about that in a moment, for instigating, for that they were just listening to their leader. And number two, and I think even more disturbing, at least equally disturbing, is the fact that many say that the Capitol Hill police, who were supposedly guarding the Capitol building, were supporters and actually let them in so they could not have been trespassing. This is their defense now. They could not have been trespassing if the Capitol Police simply let them in. Now, that is an interesting defense. And it appears that there were some Capitol Police that were sympathetic to Donald Trump and to the position of these insurrectionists. And um, that is one of the defenses that's being raised. So that'll be interesting because this investigation, and I've been hearing also now that more serious charges like conspiracy to commit insurrection are going to be levied against many of these people. And the question still remains whether Donald Trump and others, higher officials will be prosecuted, indicted. That's still to come. But the lawsuit against the civil lawsuits, the lawsuits by Dominion against Giuliani, the MyPillow CEO, those are proceeding and the more serious criminal charges are still um, yet to be filed. Many criminal charges, such as trespassing, things of that nature, have been filed, but the more serious ones, insurrection, conspiracy to commit insurrection, those, I understand, are in the works, and we will have to wait a little bit of time to see how that turns out, or how those turn out, I should say. Now, before I talk about Ted Cruz going to Cancun while the people in Texas, citizens of Texas, his constituency, literally froze to death. I think we need to talk first about John McCain. And I'm sure many of you know the story of John McCain, a senator from Arizona. In 1967, John McCain's plane was shot down over North Vietnam. And as he was ejected, he was captured. But in the process of being shot down over Hanoi in North Vietnam, both of his legs were shattered and both of his arms were shattered during the ejection. Less than a year into John McCain's imprisonment, his father was named commander of the U.S. forces in the Pacific. And the North Vietnamese saw an opportunity for leverage by offering John McCain's release, which would have been both a propaganda victory for the North Vietnamese and a way to demoralize other American prisoner of wars. But John McCain, despite being tortured in what was called the Hanoi Hilton, and in solitary confinement, said no, he would not agree to be released. 
He stuck to the POW code of conduct that says troops must accept release in the order in which they were captured, and he refused release until all of his men that had been captured were released. John McCain said in his autobiography, I knew that every prisoner the Vietnamese tried to break, those who had arrived before me and those who had come after me, would be taunted with the story of how an admiral's son had gone home early, a lucky beneficiary of America's class-conscious society. Now, as might be expected, the North Vietnamese reacted with fury and escalated John McCain's torture. They tortured him day and night for four years. He ended up trying to commit suicide twice unsuccessfully, but they beat him and tortured him literally for four years after he refused release in solitary confinement in a windowless 10 by 10 foot cell. Now, why do I mention this? Because Ted Cruz, a senator from the state of Texas, after being cold for a couple of days due to a deep freeze and the lack of electricity in the state of Texas, decided to take his family to Cancun on a vacation while the people in the state of Texas were literally freezing to death. The juxtaposition of John McCain versus Ted Cruz immediately came to my mind. Donald Trump, the man who once said that he doesn't respect John McCain because he was captured and he likes people who weren't captured, of course, got his daddy to make sure he didn't get drafted into Vietnam, claiming he had bone spurs in his foot. But of course, Donald Trump doesn't have a Navy warship named after him. There will never be a SS Donald Trump. There will never be an SS Ted Cruz. But there is an SS John McCain. But the difference between the character in a person like Ted Cruz, who took his family to Mexico to get away from the cold for a few days while people died versus John McCain, who spent four additional years in solitary confinement being beaten nearly to death on a daily basis with shattered arms and shattered legs, refusing an early release before his other men were released, I thought needed to be mentioned. You know, character matters and... We tend to forget as people pass away what they were all about. Nobody's perfect. I'm sure John McCain was not perfect. He probably had many flaws. I'm sure he did. But he can't sit here and speak for himself any longer. But when we think about who our leaders are today and we think about a person like Ted Cruz versus a man like John McCain, I just thought that needed to be mentioned. Also, since the last episode of Blurred Laws in Life, as everyone now knows, I'm sure, Donald Trump was quote-unquote acquitted by the Senate in an impeachment vote 
in which seven or eight Republican senators had the courage to vote to impeach Donald Trump for inciting an insurrection. The remainder of the Republicans had no courage. They were not about to risk their political lives by convicting Donald Trump, a man who stood idly by, not only telling his followers that they had a fight to overturn the election and encouraging them to go to Washington, D.C., but then sat idly by, did not call in the National Guard while the attack on the Capitol building occurred, while his vice own vice president and others in the Senate basically hid for their lives. Never before in our history has that ever happened. After he voted to acquit Donald Trump of inciting an insurrection, this is what the leader of the Republican Senate, Mitch McConnell, said. And remember, this was minutes after he and other Republicans voted to acquit former President Donald Trump of a group that he incited the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. He said that he found Trump, quote, practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day, but explained that he did not feel the former president was constitutionally eligible for conviction. Now that is a convenient cop-out. And it's a cop-out when one considers the actual text of exactly what he said. And this is what he said. This is the exact text of what Mitch McConnell said literally minutes after voting to acquit Donald Trump. January 6th was a disgrace. American citizens attacked their own government. They used terrorism to try to stop a specific piece of democratic business they did not like. Fellow Americans beat and bloodied our own police. They stormed the Senate floor. They tried to hunt down the Speaker of the House. They built a gallow and chanted about murdering the Vice President. They did this because they had been fed wild falsehoods by the most powerful man on earth because he was angry that he lost an election. Former President Trump's actions preceding the riot were a disgraceful dereliction of duty. The House accused the former president of, quote, incitement. That is a specific term from the criminal law. Let me put that to the side for one moment and reiterate something I said weeks ago. There is no question that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of that day. The people who stormed this building believe they were acting on the wishes and instructions of the president. And their having that belief was a foreseeable consequence of the growing crescendo of false statements, conspiracy theories, and reckless hyperbole which the defeated president kept shouting into the largest megaphone on planet Earth. The issue is not only the president's intemperate language on January 6th. It is not just the endorsement of remarks in which an associate urged, and that would be Rudy Giuliani, quote, trial by combat, period, end quote. It was also the entire manufactured atmosphere of looming catastrophe, the increasingly wild myths about a reverse landslide election that was being stolen in some secret coup by our now president. 
I defended the president's right to bring any complaints to our legal system. The legal system spoke. The Electoral College spoke. As I stood up and said clearly at that time, the election was settled. But that reality just opened a new chapter of even wilder and more unfounded claims. The leader of the free world cannot spend weeks thundering that shadowy forces are stealing our country and then feign surprise when people believe him and do reckless things. Sadly, many politicians sometimes make overheated comments or use metaphors that unhinged listeners might take literally. This was different. This was an intensifying crescendo of conspiracy theories orchestrated by an outgoing president who seemed determined to either overturn the voter's decision or else torch our institutions on the way out. The unconscionable behavior did not end when the violence began. Whatever our ex-president claims he thought might happen that day, whatever reaction he says he meant to produce by that afternoon, he was watching the same live television as the rest of the world. A mob was assaulting the Capitol in his names. These criminals were carrying his banners, hanging his flags, and screaming their loyalty to him. It was obvious that only President Trump could end this. Former aides publicly begged him to do so. Loyal allies frantically called the administration. But the president did not act swiftly. He did not do his job. He didn't take steps so federal law could be faithfully executed and order restored. Instead, according to public reports, he watched television happily as the chaos unfolded. He kept pressing his scheme to overturn the election. Even after it was clear to any reasonable observer that Vice President Pence was in danger, even as the mob carrying Trump banners was beating cops and breaching perimeters, the president sent a further tweet attacking his vice president. Predictably and foreseeably under the circumstances, members of the mob seem to interpret this as further inspiration to lawlessness and violence. Later, even when the president did half-heartedly begin calling for peace, he did not call right away for the right to end. He did not tell the mob to depart until even later. And even then, with police officers bleeding and broken glass covering Capitol floors, he kept repeating election lies and praising the criminals. In recent weeks, our ex-president's associates have tried to use the 74 million Americans who voted to re-elect him as a kind of human shield against criticism. Anyone who decries his awful behavior is accused of insulting millions of voters. That is an absurd deflection. 74 million Americans did not invade the Capitol. Several hundred rioters did. And 74 million Americans did not engineer the campaign of disinformation and rage that provoked it. One president did. I have made my view of this episode very plain. He goes on then to try to justify constitutionally why Donald Trump is not eligible for conviction for impeachment under the Constitution. But he then goes on to say, there is no doubt this is a very close question. Donald Trump was the president when the House voted, though not when the House chose to deliver the papers. Brilliant scholars argue both sides of the jurisdictional question. The text is legitimately ambiguous. I respect my colleagues who have reached either conclusion. But after intense reflection, he says he believes that Donald Trump is not eligible for conviction. However, he does note that we have a criminal justice system in this country. We have civil litigation and former presidents are not immune from being held accountable by either one. So basically, after running down 
what Donald Trump did to literally betray this country and to put his own vice president's life at risk, Mitch McConnell makes an argument that while the text is ambiguous under the Constitution and he respects people who might disagree, he has concluded that Donald Trump under the Constitution as an ex-president is not eligible for conviction. He, of course, notes after that 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 does not mean that he may not be liable civilly or criminally under the judicial system. This is the biggest problem we have in this country, in the judicial system, as far as I am concerned. I have zero doubt that if Mitch McConnell was a Democrat, or rather, let me say it this way, if Donald Trump was a Democrat, and it was Donald Trump, a Democrat, who had taken the actions that he took. Let's for a second imagine it was Bill Clinton who had committed this, these acts. And Bill Clinton, as we might recall, was impeached by the House for his affair with Monica Lewinsky and for not being truthful with respect to that episode, but then was uh, not convicted by the Democratic Senate. But let's just assume it was Bill Clinton who had done this and Mitch McConnell, a Republican, and the Republican Senate had control of the Senate at that time. Does anyone believe for a second that Mitch McConnell would have had the same interpretation of the Constitution as he does now when it's Donald Trump, a Republican, who is subject to conviction by the Senate? Does anyone really believe that Mitch McConnell, if it was a Democrat instead, would have the same view of the Constitution and whether he had the power to convict? It's a rhetorical question. We all know the answer to it. And that is the problem I have generally after practicing law for 25 years, more than 25 years, with our system of justice in many cases. Judges are influenced by politics. Judges are influenced by their own self-interest many times. And they many times don't want to go out on a limb on a controversial issue. I've had many experiences like that where I felt I was absolutely right on the law. But for whatever reason, the judge, I did not think, had the courage to do what I thought should be done. And politics often takes control. Self-interest takes control. And it is a problem because if ever, if you heard, if you listened, and I felt that I needed to read the text of Mitch McConnell's statement, at least most of it verbatim, because it is shocking that the leader of the Republican Senate said all of those things that this sitting president did and did not do, but then did not have the courage to convict. If ever there was a time where that courage was needed, where leadership was needed, that was it. Does anyone really believe that, if, for example, John McCain was still alive? What way he would have voted? Not because of any animosity or personal problems with Donald Trump, but because of the facts. We only now remember that Donald Trump was acquitted of this trial in the Senate. He will boast that he was acquitted. His followers will boast that he was acquitted. But we all know the truth is he was only acquitted 
because not enough Republicans had the courage to do what should be done. And the striking statement by Mitch McConnell should not be lost on all of us. This was the actual leader of the Republican Senate detailing specifically exactly what Donald Trump did and did not do that day. But with all of that said, he still did not have the courage to convict. And guess what? Here's the PS. Here's the postscript. Just the other day, I read Mitch McConnell was quoted as saying that he would fully support Donald Trump in 2024 if he were to run again and be the Republican nominee for president of the United States. How do you reconcile what you just heard Mitch McConnell say with that? I certainly can't. Lastly, on this week's episode of Blur Laws in Life and away from legal issues and politics for the moment, nothing was bigger in the news in the last couple of weeks than the stock market frenzy involving Reddit users all gathering together to drive up dramatically prices of a few specific stocks, most notably GameStop was one, which is a video game seller, and AMC, which is a movie theater chain. While this was pending, while this frenzy was occurring, with prices of GameStop rising from $5 a share to literally over $400 a share, Robinhood and other trading sites began restricting the ability to trade GameStop halting the New York Stock Exchange, halted the trading in GameStop. Retail investors were unable to short the GameStop stock. And for those of you who don't know, in stock market parlance, going along a stock means you bet it goes up. When you short a stock, you're basically selling the stock you don't own short, hoping that it goes down. So if you sell it short at $400 a share, and then you buy it back at $200 a share, you're betting it goes down so that you make money um, as it goes down. So Robinhood was restricting and stopping both purchases of GameStop as well as the ability to sell it and the ability to sell it short. So the question becomes whether that's legal, whether brokerages have the power or the right to restrict trading in certain stocks and to prevent you from selling your shares, buying more shares, selling shares short, because people are literally losing millions of dollars when unilateral action like that is taken. So again, the question has become whether any of that is legal. And whenever questions like this arise and whenever people lose a lot of money, you can bet there will be lawsuits. And that makes it perfectly ripe for Blurred laws in life because, again, this is a very blurred area of the law. So far, at least as of the beginning of February, at least 30 parties across 10 states in potential class action litigation have sued Robin Hood in federal court, 
alleging that Robinhood users lost millions of dollars because they were unable to buy or sell stock during the time that those stocks were frozen and that the company chose to quote unquote manipulate the market to help other financial institutions. As I mentioned, Robinhood, which actually builds itself as a democratizing force in the stock market because it allows retail investors to trade for basically free, helped facilitate an unprecedented boom around a handful of what are called meme stocks last month, as I said, based upon Reddit users gathering together to all buy the stocks and drive the prices up. But on January 28th, it infuriated the users by freezing trades on several of these stocks. The company defended the move in a blog post, calling it a quote-unquote risk management decision undertaken in the face of extraordinary circumstances. The lawsuits that have been filed accuse the company of negligence and breaching its contract with traders. As I said, more suits seeking class action status have followed spread across courts in New Jersey, California, Texas, Florida, and other states. One plaintiff claims he lost $220,000 because Robinhood wouldn't let him exercise GameStop purchase options. One of the complaints reads, Robinhood has completely blocked retailer investors from purchasing GameStop stock for no legitimate reason. It claims Robinhood, quote, failed to provide adequate explanation about pulling a profitable stock from its platform and, quote, knowingly put the customers at a disadvantage compared to other customers using other trading apps, unquote. These plaintiffs, these traders have asked that Robinhood be responsible for all financial damages incurred by reason of their inability to trade, which is going to be very difficult for those plaintiffs to uh, win on, by the way. How will it be able to be proven when they would have sold, what they would have done, when they would have bought. Very difficult for them to succeed on this. At least one Washington judge certified a class action lawsuit against Robinhood last week. But the contract, and this is um, something I've talked about in earlier episodes of Blurred Laws in Life, the contract that many of these companies and other companies in other areas require retail customers in the case of stock market brokerages, but customers in general and employees to enter into arbitration agreements. In this case, as I understand it, um, Robinhood has an arbitration clause, which requires that these matters be litigated outside of the court system. Of course, whenever ordinary citizens are outraged, politicians take it upon themselves to get in on the action for their own political purposes. And since this occurred, The company's decision to restrict this trading drew bipartisan condemnation from lawmakers, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, otherwise known as AOC, and others calling to investigate the company's decision. While this is obviously in the early innings of litigation, it will be very interesting to see what is done on a political level and what is done in the judicial system, including whether these cases stay in the court system or whether they are kicked and put to arbitration. So I hope you have enjoyed this episode number 42 of Blurred Laws and Life. I apologize again for the two-week absence that we've had, but I am back at it and looking forward to doing this each week. And I look forward to speaking to you all next week. And don't forget to follow us on the Blurred Laws and Life Instagram page, where, as I mentioned, we now have, yes, 
225 followers of Blurred Laws and Life. Have a great week, everyone, and I will speak to you again next week on Blurred Laws and Life. Have a great week, everyone.